I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Golf Podcast. That's right. New branding, Fried Egg Golf Podcast. I'm Andy Johnson. Uh, today, I have a uh, big episode for you. Two interviews. I'm really excited about these. I have uh, Michael Kim, a PGA Tour player, University of Cal standout golfer who uh, just wrapped up a, a really strong year on the PGA Tour. So he has become a uh, quite a, a big Twitterer. X, I guess, presence in the last uh, six months, really putting out a lot of thoughts and stuff. He's a, he's a, you can tell a deep thinker in the game of golf. So I was really excited to chat with him just about his year, about his career and uh, a little bit about what's going on in golf. So talk with Michael Kim. And then I'm also joined by Jimmy and Jake Hoselton who started grass clippings. They are a, they took a lifestyle brand really that, you know, was devoted to superintendents and has, uh, you know, it's evolved from clothes and merch to a, uh, they are redeveloping a par three course. They're turning it into a lighted par three course in Tempe, Arizona. And they are also starting a par three golf league. Um, really exciting stuff. Cool idea, fresh perspective, and uh, two, two really good guys. I can't wait to get down there and check out the golf course. So let's get into it. But first, let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement that delivers comprehensive nutrients to support whole body health. This stuff is great. Um, you take, I take it every morning. It's so simple. It's a scoop. I mix it up with a little water, and it just gets me off to a good start every day. Uh, this thing, it, it is packed with nutrients and, and different things that just cover your basics. So, you know, you start every day feeling like, hey, listen, I am, I'm good to go. And, you know, if I have a really healthy day, that's awesome. But if I don't, I don't feel like I'm just missing everything out. So it replaces your multivitamin, probiotic, and more, and it's just a really easy habit. That's the biggest thing that I've seen a big benefit from. I take this every every day. I've been the most healthy I've been probably since uh, before before college, uh, really. So I think the, the big thing here is just getting into the habit, getting into the routine, and AG1 helps me do that, and it, it packs a punch with tons of nutrients, high-quality ingredients that uh, is delivered in a pretty tasty drink. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash the fried egg. That's drinkag1.com slash the fried egg. Check it out. All right. Now on to Michael Kim. (music) 
Hey, when you were at Cal, uh, what courses did you guys get to play in the Bay Area? And uh, I know you guys play a few. And, and what, what was your favorite one? So we played, um, well, we had our home tournament at the Meadow Club, um, which was a McKenzie design, cool little track. Um, we played TPC at Stonebrae quite a bit. We played Lake Merced quite a bit. Um, we played SF Club quite a bit. Um, never Olympic. Um, that's usually the question I get. Um, my favorite was probably to play every day Lake Merced. Um, I think I, I haven't played it since the Reno. I think they did a pretty big renovation in um, a couple years ago. But uh, you like S? I mean, SF Club has like a completely different vibe to it. It's got this like super old school vibe, but. Um, the golf course itself is pretty simple. It's like really wide fairways, really big greens. Um, the toughest part about that golf course is just, there's no, uh, yardage yardages in the sprinkler heads and they don't allow, um, lasers. So usually you're just walking stuff off of bunkers, which is, we can kind of get a little annoying. Um, so distance control is always a little hard, but uh, I'd say Lake Merced is definitely my favorite. I was I was wondering if you were going to bring that up. I I had heard from one of your teammates uh, that you guys used to play there. You know, you you'd play and you wouldn't have caddies, um, and and it, mm-hmm. you had no yardages. Yeah, no yardages. They they give you they would give us these yardage books, kind of these old school yardage books, and you know it would have like this one's at ninety nine to the front. This one is. 143 to the front but there was enough numbers that like you couldn't quite tell if this was like the 99 or like the 110 (laughs) and so what i would start doing is you just walk off the front edge of the bunkers um or the back edge whichever one was closer but then you know sometimes you'd be walking 30 yards um just because if you're kind of far away from the bunker and um you know they didn't give us uh pin sheets um, so we kind of guess how far on it was on the green. Um, so it was, uh, kind of, kind of different. And, uh, but I mean, the golf course is really cool and it's in a really cool spot. So, um, no one ever complained, obviously. Yeah. You know, I, Ben Crenshaw, he grew up, uh, I think it was Riverside playing in, uh, in Austin and he, his course had no yardages. So at his new court, his Austin Golf Club, the club he he kind of started down there, there's no yardages like on sprinkler heads or anything. But everybody uses guns, and I remember the one, the first time I played there, my gun uh, died like on the first hole. <laughs> oh no! And, I mean, it was kind of like by the end of the. It's funny how like you adjust by the end, like you start to like you know see, but like the first few, it's just so hard. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's funny how, how that works. Definitely. Like, um, I mean, a lot of us, we, we kind of hit our shots and we'd be like kind of posing, but then oftentimes it'd be like 30 feet short. <laughs> and so it was, uh, <laughs> it was pretty, it was always interesting. Yeah. And these days, you know, with, uh, lasers and stuff, it's, it, it make no sense. Yeah. Um, you guys had like a, a legendary team, one, one of the best, um, college golf teams in in recent years and i think it's uh, most people would agree in in history of college golf um when you think back to those times is there a a specific story that always pops in your head uh from the from that team 
you know, yeah, I mean, we obviously had an amazing team my sophomore year. We had, uh, I tell people, we had three first-team All-Americans and two second-team All-Americans as our top five. Um, that's kind of just shows how so how good our team was. Uh, you know, Max won NCAs and Pac-12s. Um, we finished individually one, two, three a couple times, I think. And we didn't win two regular season tournaments and one um, Michael Weaver was playing the masters as a runner up, but um, at the USAM the uh, year prior. So we weren't even um, full. We weren't like our top five wasn't there for that one other tournament. Um, as far as story goes, you know, selfishly, I remember I worth the most cause that was my, that was our collegiate win. Um, I thinking back, my favorite, story was at um western intercollegiate at Pasatiempo. Um this is when um this is almost at the end of the year and it that one's really unique because we you play as a foursome and you play with one of your teammates. And after the first 36 holes we were losing to UCLA by I want to say seven or eight shots. And um and I was playing with Max um, the final round. And I remember we were walking up nine and Max and I had a good start against their top two guys, Pontus and Pedro, I'm pretty sure. And um, nine is this par five, kind of short up the hill. Um, and there was one big scoreboard behind the, behind the green. And um, and I think we were already up by like nine at that point. So in nine holes, we had flipped it by like 16 shots or so. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, like this is kind of crazy. And uh, I had I had like a chip from just off the green at like 20 yards for eagle. And I chipped it in and I, and I kind of lost my mind. I was like, let's go. And uh, like slapped Max's hand so hard. And he had like a 30 foot downhill slider for his eagle putt and he's like dude i couldn't feel my hands during <laughs> during uh my eagle putt because you, you uh hit my head so hard um uh, but and the, and we ended up winning um pretty pretty easily i think by, by double digit shots so that's definitely one of the stories i definitely remember it's um i guess like that's the thing about college golf is the the team element it, it matters so much that that I think that's probably one of the big things that the pro golf misses a little bit is like that intensity. And we see it at the Ryder cup, but we don't really see it any other time where, where, you know, you're, you're all playing individually still in college golf, but there is this, you know, and I, it's this, I guess it's just this thing with colleges, right. It's the magic of, of any college sport is that you have this general rooting interest in, in you, you all are members of teams, but it is like kind of one of the things about, about men's professional golf or women's professional golf that like, I think it's just the one little thing that might be missing from it becoming much more popular. Yeah. Um, I mean, golf is such an individual sport, obviously that whenever we can get into a team setting, um, it's such a cool feeling. And even in college golf, it's kind of funny. Like the entire round, you're just thinking about yourself, you know, you just need to do as best as you can. And then as soon as that's over, it's kind of like, all right, how, how's the team doing? And, and, uh, it's kind of a unique thing. And, um, 
you know, some of my fondest memories are from golf are absolutely from my Cal days. Hey, uh, well, you know, this is a little off topic here, but uh, as a Cal alum, what do you, what do you want to happen with all this realignment stuff? It's so, I mean, like, it's crazy, right? I mean, it seems like the four schools are like the ones left hanging and, and, um, you know, as soon as, as soon as UCLA and USC left for the big 10, uh, was it last year? Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like you could kind of see it coming. And I was honestly surprised that Oregon and, and Stanford and some of the other big name, um, sports colleges, um, weren't leaving already. And then, you know, this year they're, they left and it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, you know, unfortunately Cal football and basketball are just not, you know, big names. Um, not too many people watch. So, um, it'll be interesting. I, I mean, if they joined the ACC, I think I just, I mean, it's so bad. That sounds terrible for, for everyone involved, for, um, the Cal students and the ACC students that have to fly over, like, are they going to meet in Texas or somewhere? Like, I don't, that's obviously not going to happen. <laughs> so like, it's, uh, it's such a weird thing. And, you know, maybe we're, this is just the transition into just maybe just two or three massive conferences or something. Who knows? As a, uh, as an Illinois alum, I, that lives in the Bay area, I am, I'm like rooting for somehow this turning into the, into Cal getting into the, into the big 10, just so I, uh, I got, I could go to basketball games. That's a great arena for basketball at Cal and, uh, and go to some Illinois basketball games. I think, I mean, I, it's, it's interesting for golf too, with the, with the realignment in a way, like, you know, the PAC 12 was this great uh, golf conference and now it's getting disbanded. And, you know, the big 10 is, you know, Illinois is obviously a great golf school, but like for the most part, very weak. And they're adding USC and UCLA and Oregon's, you know, pretty good program too. And Washington's pretty good program, but it's like, they're still a pretty weak golf conference, you know, and it's the non-revenue sports stuff is just, it's, it's fascinating. And I guess golf with conferences is a little different, right? Yeah. I mean, golf, it's it's not as much like home and away games, right? You just go to certain tournaments hosted by certain schools. So, you know, golf is probably one of the sports that's least affected by all this conference realignment. Like, I don't think Cal's schedule is going to change very much at all just because of any of this realignment. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just so weird to think that USC and UCLA and Oregon and Washington aren't, aren't part of the Pac-12 or, and whatnot. Um, because one of, you know, one of my, you know, fondest memories at Cal was we, my freshman year, we won, um, yeah, it was still Pac-12, yeah, Pac-12 um, in our programs, that was our programs first um, ever. And so I remember us, we were kind of the underdogs, USC, UCLA were really good and, and we ended up uh, beating Oregon in a playoff. And um, that was just one of the coolest things are just celebrating with the team afterwards and uh it's kind of a shame that it, that might not happen um for future teams you were obviously a, a extremely highly regarded um highly ranked amateur golfer and um when you when you turn pro leaving college um what do you think when you look back was the biggest adjustment um i think 
for one, the amount of golf that you that you play, especially if you get yourself right into the Corn Ferry Tour, it's pretty it's staggering. I mean, my first year, I think I played um, as soon as kind of the the summer months hit. I think I played like eleven out of thirteen weeks. Um, that's just playing every Corn Ferry Tour event you can you can you know play just to try and get into that top twenty five. Um, and in college and in amateur golf, you might play you know two weeks in a row, maybe three weeks in a row, um, but certainly not that much. That's certainly one of the biggest adjustments. I think people people always overlook how draining a 72-hole tournament is, too. Like, people are like, oh, it's golf. It's not that hard. But, like, there there's a, a weird thing with, like, the mental and the physical aspects. And it's usually, you know, it's usually hot. Like, you know, anybody that played last week in Memphis is, is dealing with some, like, you know, stuff two days later from that you know, that, that, uh, that heat, you know, and I think that's the thing that's a little overlooked always with golf is that like the, I think there's just like a, a mental burden. No other sport spans that kind of time where you, and has that kind of, kind of almost like anguish and thought it's reactionary. You're in the moment in, in most all, all, almost every other sport. The only thing I can think of that really relates is like pitching is the thing mm-hmm. that I always think about is like the best relation. And those guys are pitching once every five days, right? hundred um, percent. You know, for us, it's like a slow burn, right? Every, every other sport, it's kind of a short, you give it all you got and then you're off for a few days. Um, I hundred percent agree with your pitching thought. Like I am always so jealous of reactionary sports where you're, you're reacting to the ball and it's, it's not a whole lot of thinking in between. Um, like, you know, even, even in baseball, as a hitter, you're just reacting to the ball. There's not – obviously, I'm obviously not a baseball player, but I yeah. I just can't imagine you having as many, as much time and thoughts as I have, you know, at, at an at-bat compared to when I'm, you know, walking to the, to the ball and, you know, this hazard is staring me at the face and I've – thought about this hazard for the last, you know, four or five days trying to figure out what, how I'm going to avoid this thing and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, like at the, at the John Deere, when I won, like, I remember getting like three hours of sleep on average just cause I was so stressed. Um, I barely slept Friday night and I barely slept Saturday night and I still had to, um, try and play another 18 holes on Sunday. It's uh yeah, it's crazy how it weighs on you. Is it is there could you, like off the top of your head, like I always think certain golf courses, like there are aspects of them. There's like one feature that you think about when you know you're playing there, it immediately like pops in your head and, and you just like it's like, oh, what am I gonna do about the fourth green? You know, like what am I is uh, you know, yeah. am I gonna push it up there? Is there one that comes to mind a, on a tour course that people would know? hundred percent. Um it's always it's always the bad ones, right? You never remember. Yes, oh, yes. That's, I know exactly what I'm going to do on on the first hole. It's that one's easy, you know. It's always like the ones you've had trouble with, the ones you've all, you've like hit a really bad shot in the past. Um, for me personally, like Travelers Hole, um, let me think, 10, 11, 12, 13. This is par five. This is double yeah. dog leg around the water. 
And, you know, for me, anything that has water OB on the right is just like, I'll 100% be thinking about that hole and what I'm going to do um, on that tee box, uh, especially with driver, if I'm trying to hit driver. And, and that hole, there's water right. And when you've hit it as wild as I've had in the past, like you think of everything else and there's like OB way left. Um, and so that's definitely one that comes to mind. Um, I mean, every, every golf course we go to, you, you have that one or two hole that you're, you're thinking about like Memphis. I think I want to say it's, I haven't played there in a while. So, um, I don't remember every hole, but I want to say the 12th hole is this dog leg right par four with water all the way down the right. Um, I want to say it's 12, but I may be wrong. Um, like that one was always a, a pain in the butt for me. It is, it, it, you know, like there's always that shot that you just like, you get done with and you just like breathe a sigh of relief, you know, it's, uh, there's always like one or two spots at, at every course where they just stick out and something it's, I mean, I think that's the hardest part about golf is just when, when there's something that drives uncertainty and for every player, you know, like for you, you're saying something on the right, you know, a hazard or be on the right. For another guy, it's it's a hazard OB on the left that gives him the heebie-jeebies. Mm-hmm. For some people, most people, it's like, especially when you get hazard on both sides, that's like a, that's a terrible. I think that actually makes it kind of easier because, you know, you just have to you have to hit a really good shot. There's nowhere to be. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, you had, So you had your best year to date. I, I think that's safe to say. Obviously, you won um, mm-hmm. the John Deere. But I think this year, if you if you looked at it uh, in totality, you played really some really great golf. Um, what part of your game or, or the changes that you've made in, in the lead up to this year do you think really drove that? Um, you know, to take it, I guess, from like the very beginning, like even at right when I turned pro, like my game was in, wasn't in a very good shape. I turned pro because I had status on the corn Ferry tour and it seemed like the right time to turn pro. Um, but even as I won or I, I got on tour, I never really felt great about my driver. And it wasn't until last year that I went and saw Sean Foley and he kind of really helped turn my driver around. And that's when I really felt like I had a lot better control over my tee shots and my swing in general. And, um, you know, ever since that corn Ferry tour season last year, um, I felt a lot better and better about my game. What, what type of changes did you guys make? I, I'm not like a, a huge swing guy, but I'm always curious. Uh, what were you trying to do and what, what did, uh, what were you, what were you changing? Um, for one, um, we, I think I got caught in trying to play like swing theory with my, with my golf swing. Um, you know, in theory, a cut is the more accurate shot. And in theory, you know, a closed, a more closed club face at the top is going to lead to less face rotation at impact and stuff like that. And Sean kind of got me to realize that, you know, that is true in theory, but for me, what's, what's the best swing for me? And a lot of that came back to, I grew up playing a draw. So we went, um, went back to um, playing a draw for almost 
based right now, um, uh, for basically every single golf shot I hit and, um, and actually really getting my hands more involved. Um, I feel like these days, the, the hot thing is to kind of let your body, I guess, control the, the club a bit more and, and take the hands out of it. But, you know, for me, I realized that was totally not the way to go. And, um, those couple things and, you know, technique wise, we made sure, um, I got a lot more width. I got a lot less, um, wrist cock, um, anything that would help me release the club and give me more time to release the club. That's the direction we went. And it's, I've, it's been great so far. It's like almost a little counterintuitive, right? In the sense of where all the all the um, trends are going, you needed to go back. But that's I, I think that's a fascinating aspect of golf is like, right? It's like there's no one swing fits all for everybody. Everybody needs to do what's best for them. Definitely. You know, there, are, there definitely are like a few like certainties you need to hit a golf ball straight, but there's maybe like, three or four of those things and they're just very basic things like you know like grips you know people like to talk about like a certain fundamental grip and setup but like even on tour i see hundreds of different grip and setup variations all within you know a certain spectrum i guess but you know it's golf the golf swing is so has ends up being so personal like i you know it's felt like I spent like six to seven months trying to swing more like Victor Hovland when I'm not Victor Hovland and I need to swing the best way um, for me. I I think this is a, it's a crazy thing about you guys on tour is like you're uh, uh, one of the 200 best players in the world, 100 best players in the world. And you guys all look at each other and want to do what the other person does. And and other people look at something you do and want that. And it's like it's it's a, it's something I find like utterly fascinating is like it's, the yeah, it's it's what makes golf. It's like the mental um, just the the mental burden of golf, right? You always want some, something somebody else has, but it's, you know, the reality is like, you have to go on your own journey. Yeah. It's so, it's so stupid. Like why, if you think, think on it, like, why would you ever think that way? Like, you know, I got here for a particular reason and you should try and improve that as opposed to copy someone else's swing. And, you know, I, I'm confident. I can confidently say I am not the only guy that is looking at, Victor or Colin Morikawa and like trying to analyze what they do so well and how can I incorporate some of that into my game. And while there are, you know, good and bad, good ways to do that. um, I probably took it way too, way too much. Um, And it's funny, like when you look at someone else's swing, like let's say, because I've brought up Victor, if when I look at Victor's swing, I'm always looking at, oh, look at how well he does this. Look at how well he does that. And then when I look at my own swing, it's like, oh, look how poorly I do that. Yes. It's it's like this weird psycho, you know, your brain works in such a weird way that you see all the benefits, all the good things about his swing. And yet you try to look for all the bad things in your own. And honestly, it should be the complete opposite. It's 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 crazy. I, it's, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I had Luke Donald on the pod and I asked him, I, I can't remember how I phrased the question, but it was something about, is there some moment in your career you look back on and have like some regret? 
and he brought up uh, the final round at Marion, which he was in the in in the hunt. He was paired. I was with there. Just, he paired, so he's paired with Justin Rose, mm-hmm. and he said he walked away, and he just thought, if I could hit it like that guy, that then I'm going to win major championships. And it's like this this guy was. I think he was number one in the world at the time. It's pretty close, yeah. Or I think right he was there. just just like kind of starting to come down, but he is very close, yeah. Yeah, and and you're you're one of the you know ten best players of the world. And you're in one of the if not the final group, the second to last group, and yeah. you walk you're away. You're playing from well. Tur- yes, yeah. you walk away from the <laughs> tournament. Like, and this is the debilitating thing that golf can do to anybody. Is like. You walk away like I I, always, I said this to somebody recently who had a chance to win a uh, one of the women's majors and she was so down she was in the one of the final groups and I'm like listen you finished whatever t whatever and it's like but you had a chance to win there's only like five people in this tournament the set that had a chance to win it's just crazy that like psychologically the game can do that to you where, you know, Luke Donald's like, I then remade my swing and it was like the worst decision I made in my career. Yeah. It's, it's so crazy. And once you know, as professional golfers, once it gets like stuck into your head that like you need to do a certain thing, it's just like, you can only think about that when, even though there are like, hundreds of other examples of a guy achieving, you know, whatever you want to achieve. Like for me, like I want to hit it straight with straighter with the driver. Like, you know, Victor Hovland has, is not the only straight driver in this entire planet. Like there are plenty of other, other great drivers of the golf ball that does, you know, something's very different than him. But like, I got stuck in this, like, Oh my gosh. Like if I could only like have the close club face of his and just hold it on, like how, and watching him hit drivers, how free he, he looks. Yeah. And you completely ignore every other thing that has to do with your swing, you know, someone else's swing, and you just get so focused in on that. It's uh, it's not healthy. It's I don't recommend it for anyone. Well, I mean, the best is he's probably you know looking at at your like around the green and on the green and saying the same yeah. thing, being like, you know, if I could just chip. <laughs> and putt like Michael, and yeah, that's definitely. the be- that's the beautiful thing about golf, you know. Um, I, I I'm curious with um, you obviously had some struggles um in, in your career. It's not just been like a um you know like a a tugboat just going going out to it's sea. Not, it. It's not just a couple <laughs> missed cuts here and there. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you you've obviously you've worked your way out of that period of time and, and you've probably, I, you're a very thoughtful uh, person on Twitter. Um, and I, when you've reflected on that period, what do you think kind of happened? You know, like I said, starting from college, I knew I was struggling, um, off the tee right when I turned pro and I was somehow able to get my tour card based on my iron game and short game and putting. And, you know, during that bad stretch, I really tried to make a lot of changes. Um, what ended up being with a bunch of different coaches. Um, and, you know, like, it's like, you know, where it, when, when you're in as deep of a hole as I was, it, it feels like, it feels like kind of you're lost, but there's a lot of different like roads you can take when each road is like a different swing coach. I can 
kind of go see him and try his stuff. I can go see him and try that stuff. And they all, you know, sound great and they all make sense in your head. But, you know, it's just, you know, sometimes you just have to end up picking the right guy. And I, I think for me, it just took a while for me to find the right guy. Um, not that they're bad coaches or anything. It's just, you know, for whatever reason, it didn't fit with me at that time. And, you know, I ended up seeing, you know, a few different coaches and, you know, these guys are the best of the best, you know, luckily I was on tour. And so I'm, I can call up, you know, whoever and ask, Hey, can I get a lesson? And he's most likely going to say yes. And so, and for me, like I've, I was never that guy to change coaches um, often I was all, you know, I've only grown up. I only basically had two swing coaches and, and one that I had been with James O for a really long time. And so when I pick a guy, I, I tend to stay with him and stay committed to him, even though maybe like the first six months hadn't gone well, I still kind of trusted his process. And maybe that's why it lasted longer than some others, but I also feel like that has helped me, you know, feel like get to a longer career with that thought process. Yeah. I, I think continuity is super important with, with coaching. It's like, it, you know, it's uh James. O. that was a, that's a blast from my past. I watched him uh, at Conway farms. I grew up at, near Conway farms. I watched him win the junior am there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. He was the youngest winner at that point. I don't know if he still is or not, but yeah. Beat, beat Aaron Badley, who was just, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it, that was the, he was the main attraction, Aaron Badley coming. It was like, I remember watching him and just being like, God, this guy is great. Um, but, uh, it, it was there, you know, where was the, I guess in your mind, if you, where was the low point? And then when was the, where was there a point where you're like, you know what? I'm like really onto it. And I'm, I'm, I know I'm come I'm on my way back. Yeah. Um, I mean, which low point do you want me to <laughs> basically, I think, um, I think my lowest low point was, after the Wyndham Championship um, in 2021, I was outside the top 200. I ran out of my winner's category from the John Deere. I thought I had to go back to Q school. Um, I had no confidence at all in my game. I was, I didn't think I would, you know, if I went to Q school, I don't, I didn't think I would be able to get my cart back there. Um, that was probably one of the definite low points. Um, and when I, and actually another low point, another real low point, um, was, um, a year after, um, well, not even a year, just a few months after, um, I realized, uh, the tour gives you one year of corn Ferry tour status. If you play for five years on the PJ tour and, I was able to use that and I started at the Bahamas and the first in the Bahamas. Those events is, can be carnage. <laughs> carnage. I mean, there's literally water and OB on every hole on every side. Like you dream, you think of like a worse course for me at that point. It was those two Bahamas events. You could not design a worse golf course for me. But they, you know, they've been those events when they were on TV, the first year they were on TV. That first year great, was straight. It was, it was electric. It was impossible, and I wish people could 
like on TV, it's like they show the good golfers or the guys that are playing well. So they're like, oh, they're hitting fairways and maybe one water ball. But I wish for those two events, they should show the worst players playing that week because you'll see like golf balls going into the water on every hole. Anyway. Uh, the scoring was all out of whack too because the volunteers crazy. weren't scoring. Right. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, but to, to get back to my story, um, so the second – Bahamas event. This is about three months. I want to say I've worked with Sean Foley and, you know, for whatever reason, it felt different. It felt like I had more control and I was really starting to believe in this process. And, um, the second Bahamas event, I get off to a decent start on the front nine. I'm hitting it pretty well. And then all of a sudden on the second nine, like, you know, it's like the nightmare is coming back. It's like, I can't hit it anywhere straight. My driver's going really far right. And for, I feel like I'm doing everything well, but everything that Sean wants me to do, but it's not going well. And I remember I was in like dead last place after that first round and just feeling so dejected. Like, uh, you know, it's golf is crazy because they always, it always, you get, always get that hope. And then, you know, as soon as you think like, I think I might have it, it just, you know, crashes you back down and that was certainly a low point. And, you know, I still had the second round. I, I knew I wasn't going to make the cut. And, you know, I'm just kind of basically going through the motions. Hopefully today is better. Um, and then on my fifth hole of that day, I started on the back nine. I hit a, you know, bad drive again. And I was cleaning my club face and I realized I had a crack on my driver. Oh. And so, uh, and then, so I thought like, oh, okay, maybe like, maybe, you know, I was, cause I was hitting it fine on the front nine and I don't know what changed on the back nine where I started hitting it bad. So I thought, oh, maybe like that's when my driver cracked and that's why the ball was going all over the place. And so luckily you have the two Bahamas event and then you, you actually have, because it ends on a Wednesday, it goes Sunday to Wednesday, you have like an extra week and a half. Uh, until you go to Panama for the next tournament. And so I went back home. Um, I asked the Callaway rep to send me a new driver and he sent me um, a new driver head along with a different model head, um, actually. And I used the other different model head. And I was like, oh, I actually think this is better. And I so I brought that club to Panama and, and Panama was really when I first knew, like, okay, I'm definitely on the right step. This is a small step, but it's definitely like a foundation that I can work off of because I hit the ball great there. Um, I just remember thinking like at the front nine of that Panama event, I hit as well as I, I had in years. And it's kind of like, you know what, no matter what happens from this tournament, you know, whether I missed the cut or whatever, I knew that was a good, good starting point. And I, and I finished, um, maybe like 15th or 17th. It was like a top 20. And I remember texting Sean, I was like, you know, this was a top 20, which, you know, in the long run doesn't mean anything, but for me, it was like, it meant the world to me because I knew, I knew this was something I could build off of. And I knew I was on the right path. And it was the first time I'd felt that in, in, you know, 10 years, it seemed like. 
That's a wild game. It's like it, sometimes it takes like one shot. You get I I recently I took like a month. I hadn't played in a month, and I came back and I was hitting the ball so great, and it lasted for you know a handful of rounds, and then like then the, this one round, nothing changes. All of a sudden, it's going all over the lot, and then it's like now I I I'm probably not gonna play for a few days. For, for a little while and all I'm thinking about is like I have no clue where the ball's going you know and it was like a week ago I was like I know exactly where it's going you know it's 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 such a weird game yeah um what um have you ever putted better than you putted at that John Deere that you won I don't think so I don't know yeah I so if you know strokes gained I I it's a I record was, right uh no, it wasn't a tour record, but I gained 13 and a half strokes on the week, which is an absurd number. <laughs> and I haven't even gotten close to that since. Uh, maybe that was kind of, you know, I got too close to the sun uh, that, at that week. But uh, I, yeah, there was, uh, you know, it, it's just one of those weeks where, where I felt great about my reads and I just felt like if I can get it on the green, I, I had a chance at making birdie, so. Now, now you're just chasing the dragon, just chasing that week. It's yeah, nothing's ever going to live up to it. That's right, hundred <laughs> um, percent. You, you. It seems like you made a very, um, a intensive decision to be more active on social media this year. Um, and I, you know, I think every golf fan that's on on Twitter has has um, been rewarded of that it's been really like you've you've lent some insights and you know you've you've made me think about things more critically i've i've found some of the things that you posted fascinating and like i've learned a lot of stuff what went into the decision to just turn on the social media because i remember i like remember the early days i was like oh all of a sudden michael kemp's coming off the top rope with some opinions (laughs) and takes you know what 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 into it and have you enjoyed the experience I, I, so I got rid of my Instagram, um, uh, maybe last year or so, cause wasn't, you know, everyone's so happy on Instagram and it's kind of <laughs> based on, on lies and, you know, it was, it's a fake place. It's so fake. Um, everyone's having the time of their lives on Instagram and, and I'm not the biggest picture taker. And so I decided to get rid of Instagram and, Twitter. Um, I don't know exactly what what decided it. Um, I, I I did figure I should keep one of them, at least one of them, active. And you know, I think I I played with Max early last year at the Safeway, um, the first two rounds. Um, and I, you know, Max, you know, to me is just the college teammate slash roommate that I had growing up. And to see kind of how much is his brand and his presence had grown at a golf tournament was, was really eye opening for one. And it was obviously really cool to see. And, you know, if I'm not going to, you know, use Instagram, might as well use Twitter. And I also felt like through my ups and, you know, my big down as a professional. Now golfer, just, now just big ups. Uh, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, hopefully big ups. Um, <laughs> But, you know, through that process, I had seen a lot of different coaches and I felt like I picked up on a lot of knowledge um, about the game, um, even more so than other tour pros that, uh, that you know, play out here. And, 
you know, golf is so hard and you see, I play pro-ams and you just see so many bad shots. And I felt like I could maybe help some people um, better get a better handle on golf. And um, whether it's a good experience, there are good days and bad days. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I had uh, like two the weeks well, ago. The well actually crowd just really kills me sometimes. <laughs> Like two weeks ago, I had this old man like like tell me that he could beat me at golf, and he was like a six <laughs> handicap. And you know, um, I've I don't block people because they almost wear it as a badge of honor. Um, I just end up muting a lot of um, people that have weird comments here and there. Um, so it's been good and bad. Um, it's weird. Like I don't realize like how many fellow pros like are on Twitter too, like silently. Oh yeah. Like, I'll, I'll like post some random thing. I, whenever I post something on Twitter, it's, I just assume it's just random people that I'll never meet in my life who will watch this or read this. And then like the very next day, like a fellow tour pro will come up to me and goes, Oh, like, like you, you thought that about this, huh? And I'll be like, Oh, I, I didn't think you would read it, but <laughs> uh, so that's, I still don't know how to react when people come up to me and say stuff like that, but uh, it's been, it's been good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've learned, I just, uh, I just laugh at everything. I, I just, I, you know, when somebody says something to me, that's like ridiculous back and, and they're being very serious, I just laugh about it. It's a, you know, it's it's too uh, too preposterous of a place to to take it take everything seriously. I feel like hundred percent, hundred percent. Let's get into a little bit of little current events here. Uh, I'm curious, a player in your position, how do you feel about the uh, signature signature events for next year and in no cuts? Yeah, um, you know, obviously, selfishly, I'm not going to be the biggest fan of it because I'm in the out. I'm on the outside looking in, and you know, with this new schedule where it's starting in January and ending in August, this the season's that much shorter, um, which means you know, the top guys playing in all those signature events are guaranteed points, and it just seems like the head start is going to be even bigger. Um, and, you know, the answer you get from the tour and from everyone is, you know, play better and you'll be, you'll, you'll be the one in. Um, but, you know, things are changing at such a fast, fast pace these days. Um, you know, I certainly am not going to have any influence on however all these things work out, you know, and so I've decided to not worry about it too much. Um, you know, like most decisions, they'll tell me what the decision was and kind of go from there. And, you know, even with all these signature events and designated events and whatever you want to call it, um, with the big, big, you know, decision with the merge of the PIF and the LIV, like, you know, this schedule might last maybe one year. It might could be completely different in two years. So um, we'll just, I'm of the mentality that I'm just going to see how it goes and try to try to play as best as I can. Yeah. You know, I was, uh, I was talking to a golf course that's, that's, you know, um, somebody that works at a golf course that's 
you know, might do a big renovation and they were talking about majors and I'm like, listen, like that PGA in May, um, it might not be there for much longer. You know, this thing could be, if the, if that framework agreement goes in, like who knows what this is going to be. I mean, it's, it's amazing how the tour went from this like boat that couldn't be rocked and nothing changed for 30 years to everything that changed in the last you know, 18 months, it has changed three times since it changed first. It's, I mean, it's crazy. As as a player in your position, you're a hundred and I think 16th in the world. Um, okay. You're, you finished 78th in the FedEx cup. You're, you know, arguably one of the hundred best people at your profession that uh, tens of millions of people play around the planet. The discourse has become that players in your position you know, the best of the very, very best don't bring value to the table. Is that a, is that a weird thing to think about? Do you try like, you know, because, they, you know, effectively it's, hey, there's 20, 10, 15 guys that matter. And those are the ones that are. Is, how does that feel? I, you know, that doesn't bother me as much. Like whenever, you know, Thursday, Friday, unless I'm in a featured group. Um, no one's coming to watch me. They're there to watch golf. And so they're at the event, but I, I don't take too much offense in that. Um, but at the same time, you know, if Rory McIlroy is playing against a scratch, just a regular scratch handicap, no one's going to watch that either. Cause you know, the competition is just going to be so boring. That's a good point. And, and so, you know, there is, I guess the value is, 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 the mules and us as a collective, <laughs> but you know, Rory himself is obviously a massive draw. And I get that. Like, you know, whenever I'm at tournaments and just see the crowd that he has and, you know, Rory and, and John and wh- whoever you want to put out there with the, with the top guys, I understand that. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, offend me or anything. I, I totally get it. Like, you know, other than, other than a couple people saying, Hey, I, I like your tour these days. Like no one has ever recognized me. Um, even at a PJ tour event, like quick, quick random story. Like I was playing, I was doing a sponsor value at CJ cup in Korea. And it was this, the sponsor value is we're supposed to go like six of us at a, at a cocktail party. Um, hosted by CJ and we're there to mingle. And I, it was me, Charlie Hoffman, Jimmy Walker. And so it was in Korea. So they had with Korean um, people attending. So they gave everyone translators and I'm, I was born in Korea. So I'm fluent in Korean and I might've been just an invisible painting on the wall because no one (laughs) recognized me and they recognized Charlie and Jimmy so everyone was talking to me, I was talking to them and, you know, me, I can actually communicate with them, you know, in the, in Korean was basically just thought I was there as a, you know, a waiter or whatever. So I looked at Phil and I was like, can I go? No one's even talking to me. They just think I'm here to enjoy the party, uh, which is, which is totally fine. And I get it. Um, and so I've never had this idea that I bring like a ton of value to the PGA tour. I, I am thankful that I am playing in it and, you know, hopefully I can make the most out of it. 
Um, what what are your thoughts on the golf ball and uh, the the USGA and RNA's proposed uh, model local rule and uh, potential rollback? Yeah, this is this is where we we start to probably not see eye to eye in, in this <laughs> in this subject. Hey, I'm I, I'm, I'm open to uh, other opinions. Uh, you, you know, with the with the rollback, I you know as a tour player, I struggle to see. Like, I, I I understand the point of like the courses can't get any longer. I a hundred percent with you there, but you know most of the golf is played by amateurs, and us pros are. I just struggle to see the the big footprint that we have supposedly on the PGA Tour. Um, if if I'm of the stance that if you're going to roll it back, I think you should roll it back for everyone because I I still think you know, where you cut off the, where you cut off, you know, when do you use the, the, the shorter ball and when you use the normal ball, that's so in a gray area. And, you know, if that happens, that means the USAM is going to play the shorter ball. That means NCA may or may not play the shorter ball. And so it just creates, I don't know. It, it seems very messy to me. And to be honest, I don't trust the USGA to handle this correctly. Um, just because like the groove rule was pointless. The scoring average went down. The modernization of the rules to me has done almost nothing to speed up the game or whatever. So I see it as it's going to change very little and it's going to have a big effect on the companies and and i just think you know you're just going to make golf more expensive than anything i guess i i would uh i would say i agree that they should just roll back everything i think that Mm -hmm. the distance problem like you know i i went through you know i'm not like long i can hit it with a a bottom distance pga tour player Mm -hmm. but i went through i played a year and a half with retro clubs and I found that it was a much more interesting game when I was, you know, hitting lots of fives and four irons into, you know, 440 yard par fours as opposed to nine irons, um, you know, and, you know, I think from that standpoint, like the distance problem exists at every golf course, right? If you're play, if you're a local golf course, that's 6,300 yards which a lot of them exist, you know, mm-hmm. somebody that hits at 280 only hits wedges. I think like the big thing that I, where I really stand on it beyond just the golf course aspect is that I think the, the PGA tour product is infinitely better when there's more variety in the shots that are required to succeed. You know, if, if you go and you play tournaments where you have to hit a, you know, basically every type of shot, you know, when you have to hit three and four irons into par fours, you have to hit, you know, fairway wood into par five, sometimes maybe even lay up on par fives. The layup is a, a actual skill in golf. That is a more interesting game. Just like when tennis went into the serve volley domination where it, you know, it was just, if you hit a big serve in the point was basically over, right? They, they realized the game got less interesting. And when a long player like Rory or John Rahm is, really like hitting 10 wedges around, I don't think that's necessarily the best product, right? 
Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you there. I just feel like, well, if you're going to make the ball go shorter, like the the longer hitters are just going to, it's going to be even an even more advantage and guys are just going to hit driver even more. And I, I understand like having variety is great. Um, I totally get that. It's just that like if it's going to come down 20 yards, that's probably just one club, maybe two. Okay, two club difference. And I just don't know, like guys like Rory is just going to hit, still going to hit driver everywhere. I feel like the bomb and gouge idea is going to be even more in play um, because with shorter distance, it's just the dispersion is going to be shorter. And a guy like Tony Finau, I don't know what his ball speed average is, maybe like high 170s. Mm-hmm. Um, like he's just going to end up swinging a little harder because he can. And, you know, selfishly for me, like I'm right around average um, distance wise. Like it's just going to play more into guys like Cameron Champ and more into guys like Rory McIlroy, in my opinion. I, I'm not sure, though, because like to, this week, um, this will air tomorrow. So the, uh, uh, during the week, like I think like Olympia Fields is a great example, right? Is like if you can hit it three, if you can carry it 310, you can effectively bypass every hazard there. Like I, mm-hmm. I've played there a number of times, like all the bunkers. I like stand on a tee. I'm like, oh, I got to hit a good one. I got to hit a good one. Whereas mm-hmm. Rory, DJ, uh, Rom. Like they just hit it over them. And mm-hmm. in a way, I think like one of the things that happens when you bring it back is the you deal with bunkers. A lot of those long hitters don't deal with bunkers. And that's the deterrent to bomb and gouge is that there's actual things that could cause hiccups in there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I am of the belief that bunkers in America are too easy. And I say that as a tour pro, like sounds crazy, but like bunkers in, you know, British opens, like it was at Royal Liverpool are actual hazards. And, and I feel like they should have a bit more um, penalty to it. But at the same time, I, you know, it's just the, the golf courses that we go to are some, you know, not some of the most intricate designs, I guess. And I, I've been, I just started working with the stats guy earlier this year and it's clear like the stats show as long as, as long as, um, you can hit your second shot or get to the green after the tee shot, it's always advantageous to just hit it as far as you possibly can. And, you know, you, I feel like you need to do that with better course design, which I, I just guess there's not that honestly, there's not that many with the cape with that design from that distance. And I see your point that like if you bring it even back, you maybe you bring those designs into play, I guess. Yeah, I, I listen, I'm not gonna stand here and say that there's like, you know, a, a ton of great designs on the PGA tour that are mm-hmm. gonna just like, you know, magically be better. I think like I think the really good designs will will stand out even more. And I think like one of the you know, one of the one of my other product complaints with the tour would be that that it doesn't, you know, you go on this TPC swing and it's like, oh God, like, you know, <laughs> that's another one of these. But um, that, that was one thing I wanted to talk about. You you played the the Open this year. Um, 
you had a great tweet thread just kind of about majors, but like, what is it about major setup that really um, differs from the PGA tour? For me, I think, well, it differs because um, pick any tournament I've been to like travelers. I know exactly what I'm going to do on every hole because I've played, you know, I've been on tour for seven, eight years now. I've played that tournament and that golf course for, you know, 20 to 30 rounds. So I, I know where all the pins are. I know exactly my strategy on every hole. Um, majors, other, other than Augusta, um, it's a mostly a, a new golf course. So I think there's always that, that um, getting to know, you know, preparing, that's always going to be different. Um, and, you know, like at LACC, nobody had seen that golf course um, you can kind of guess where the pins are going to be, but you know they try to go to unique and interesting golf courses, which which is great. And you know, Lynx Golf is kind of in its own own yeah, area. It's completely different, it's right? Completely different. I think uh, I fell in love with Lynx Golf as soon as I played one round um, back in '18 at Carnoustie. I was like, this is the way golf is truly meant to be played. Um, but you know, it's just the preparing part is so different. Um, and generally, unfortunately, most majors these days ask a pretty specific question of how well can you drive it and how well can you hit your irons and usually mid to long irons. So um, that's why the cream rises to the crop so often. Uh, but, you know, just that preparing is 100% way different. Yeah, it's... Uh, I... They're they're amazing tournaments when you look back on them, and I think the thing that I always find um, just um, intriguing about when you think about when you think back to like you know I think back to the Open at St Andrews and watching that is like how you know everybody talks about this and that and like it's just like there's so many little moments, and it's the 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 magic of golf is that like you know there's four rounds and there's so many little moments and it could be a bounce here a lip out here a lip in there and that's you know what decides these tournaments and and uh you know it's it's uh majors are majors are the best uh out there i i hope i hope we get to see you play in a lot more i i do too yeah it's just you know majors it's also got a you know the vibe is definitely different too because you, for one you know it's a major and on the PGA tour other than you know maybe like two or three different holes where they try to focus on the the grandstands um on majors you see more grandstands you just see more people so you can feel the 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 bigger energy um when you play it too so that also adds to the atmosphere yeah. unless unless it's at LACC where there's a they block out as many spectators as possible that first tee was something else yeah the first first tee was interesting you're basically hitting from the putting green while while uh basically members of the lacc are just watching you uh, (laughs) watching you tee off uh and uh yeah i mean it's definitely a cool spot for sure. But. This is a cool course. Um, hey, Michael, thanks so much for coming on uh, and, and give us some time. We, we so many more things I want to talk about. Uh, we'll have to have you come back on if you if you got the time uh, at some point and uh, look forward to seeing you out on tour. But everybody should follow you on Twitter and, uh, and, and thank you so much. Absolutely. Happy to do it. 
All right, before we get to Jimmy and Jake from Grass Clippings, let's talk about our next partner, the USGA. I have uh, been home in uh, Chicago area for the last few weeks, and one of the cool things, I went to my parents' house, and uh, you know what was waiting there? My USGA bag tag, because I am a USGA member. One of the neat things, I, I got a little bit nostalgic looking at it. Um, they put like the, the member since. Uh, so I've been a USGA member since 1999. Uh, it is something I do now at this point in my life to support uh, all the good things that the USGA is doing from their programs to get more uh, people introduced to the game of golf, especially you know young people introduced in the game of golf to the stuff they're doing with the water research, also to support their amateur championships that I think are awesome. Obviously, you got the USAM going on right now. Um, we're getting into the season. You know, they're they're lower profile amateur events, but they are the ones that uh, really I I can attest to mean the most to to the people playing. You know, the the U.S. Open the U.S. Women's Open qualifiers, people that, you know, uh, that means a lot. But I think, you know, you get into the season, the amateurs, you saw it with Shane Bacon. I think uh, he was overwhelmed with just, you know, getting to play in one of these. You don't know when you're uh, when you get in your 30s, you're never sure you get to play in these and they run world class events. But for many, many reasons, I am a USGA member and, uh, you know, it's cool to see the bag tag. So, um, you know, if you are interested in becoming a USGA member, you get tons of benefits. You get the hat, you get the golf journal, you get um, obviously the bag tag, and uh, you support a lot of great causes. If you're interested in becoming a member, visit usga.org slash fried egg. That's usga.org slash fried egg and uh, become one today. Now let's kick it to Jimmy and Jake from Grass Clippings. So you guys, uh, Jimmy and Jake, are the founders of Grass uh, Grass Clippings, and I just would love to hear about the start. Like, how how did this start? Right now, obviously, and I probably mentioned this in the intro, but you are are building a new par three golf course that's going to be lit. But it started really as like a lifestyle brand, right? Yeah. Um, you want me to take it away, Jim? Let it fly. So. It, it, one giant snowball effect, really, and you you nailed it on the on the head that it started as a lifestyle brand, and so in 2018, we uh, co-founders, myself, Jake, Jimmy, Connor, Riley, and Pete Wilson, um, all came together and set out to start a golf company that gave recognition to the greenskeepers. That was the overarching theme from, from day one. Uh, we were fortunate enough to know a greenskeeper of the course that we grew up playing in, in Northern Arizona. And he was the heart and soul and, and knew so much about the course. And we kind of had this, this, um, you know, backstage experience of, interacting with him and nobody at the club knew who he was because we would walk around the clubhouse with him, and no one knew that this was like the crutch to the whole operation. And so we had sat on the idea for a long time. And ultimately when the time was right, we, we let it fly, uh, grass clippings. It wasn't necessarily, um, we weren't searching for a name, but when it, when it just 
hit us that grass clippings would be a great name. Um, and it was a good way using the word grassy to describe anything that's in the realm or like a greenskeeper. Um, we knew that was the right name for it. So uh, late 2018, we uh, incorporated Grass Clippings Inc. and got to rolling. Um, and things really started slow, just like with a, a, a stay grassy hat and some grass clipping shirts. Um, and all of this was um, sort of the, the back end leading up to what our launch event was, which is the Grass Clippings Open Golf Tournament which ultimately led to three years uh, of, of, uh, of work and reason to go get our own golf course. What would you say uh, drew you to the, to the superintendent and, and their, what they do? Like what, what is it about them that you find uh, underappreciated? So you're talking to uh, two of the four co-founders, well, and we actually kind of added a co-founder, TJ Forrester, give him a shout out. Uh, he's our CFO, but um, you're, you're talking to golf purists. And even though we're sort of adding these eccentric uh, details and adjectives to the game of golf and sort of focusing in on, on short courses and par three tournaments, um, we are golf purists at, at the core and looking all the way back to old Tom Morris, he was a golfer. He was a professional golfer. He won major championships and he was also the first person to take a mower to the grass in which they were playing uh, and, and cut the, cut the grass and make it a better place to ultimately play the, the game that they had in mind. And so somehow between then and now there's been like this growing gap between uh, the greenskeeper's persona in golf, in our opinion. And we just felt like there should be a golf brand that if you wear that article of clothing, it's one giant tip of the cap or, or one of these to the, uh, to the greenskeeper while you're out there. Yeah. I mean, when you think about uh, uh, superintendents and, and it's like they're, they're actual scientists, right? Like they go to school and they get degrees in science. Like they, it's, it's no joke. Like I, I, I tried to be a science major and, uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't hack the chemistry, um, classes and it's like, it's hard. And, and, you know, you think about the pressure of, of a golf course, you know, they're hundreds of acres and, you know, the, the conditioning aspect, the expectations of members, they, notice the smallest little things and you think about your own yard, it's hard, hard to maintain your own yard. Right. Um, when you, when you guys started this, I'd, I'd love to hear about like, you know, who were the first customers? how did you become discovered? How did, how did you guys go about, you know, growing into what you are today? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, it was it, a similar story to any, uh, any sort of just internet based golf brand. Like we, the, our first move was going on Instagram. Right. Mm -hmm. And we were posting cool pictures of things that were themed and deemed grassy in our opinion. And, and so from there, you know, comes the website, uh, comes some more media and imagery and videos, uh, surrounding, this overarching theme and this story that we knew we wanted to tell. 
And um, I think r really uh, what caught on was anyone who resonated with the brand was, and, and, you know, a lot of our customers now are actually greenskeepers. Um, and so that really was the core. It was like, yeah, no, I want to be grassy. I want to tip my cap to the greenskeeper, or I want to buy this for my greenskeeper, or, um, you know, I love cutting my lawn and I want to be grassy while I'm out there, you know, mowing my own lawn. So I think like the, the, the first customer was anyone that had any sort of relationship with grass because we, we've sort of glorified grass as this, we have a saying anywhere there's grass, we glorified it as really anywhere there's a nice piece of turf is a desirable place to be, whether it's croquet, a good baseball field, um, you know, big polo fields that's in the middle of Palm desert, they go have Coachella in Indio. And it's like, it's cause it's, giant grass field, it seems like a good idea to have a, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people there for a concert. And so um, I think it was anyone who sort of connected from a grass standpoint. Yeah, I, I would uh, agree with that. I live somewhere where a lot of yards don't have grass. And like my my daughter gets really excited when we get to the park because there's like nice green grass. And it's like, you know, there's something there's like gravitational pull to grass. Right. And I think like you sure. definitely are striking a chord there. Um, so with the with the par three tournament, that seems to be something that was really like a uh, almost like a lightning rod moment for for you guys brand. Um, what was the, you know, the first tournament and the reaction and, and where you went from there? Yeah, so we hosted the the first tournament, the GCO Grass Clippings Open in 2019, um, and we we kind of launched our apparel alongside the tournament, and uh, it was a huge success. The whole idea behind the Grass Clippings Open was um, to have a high stakes amateur uh, golf tournament, um, and we wanted to do it on a par three course for you know several reasons. Um, we just feel like shorter courses, uh, create more entertainment. Um, it allows, uh, all different types of folks to play from the same tee box. You know, it, you take driver out of the hand and, uh, everyone gets to play from the same tee box. So the, the whole concept was where could we pull off a tournament that we could get ages 21 to 85 years old? Uh, with no strokes, high entry fee, and ultimately high stakes. And, and considering all of those things, there's a, there's a great golf, a great par three golf course called Mountain Shadows here in town. It's a well-maintained par three course, which is kind of oddly hard to find a well-maintained par three course. They're always just like short, like offshoots or they're afterthoughts. You know, they're afterthoughts. And so Mountain Shadows does a great job. And that's like where the grass clippings open started. And, and so we, Jimmy, went down a road of saying, how do I get all of the best pockets of golf in the valley to come onto one course and play in the grass clippings open? And so to Jimmy's credit, we, um, you know, started making calls to Phoenix Country Club and Silverleaf and Whisper Rock and Papago 
and um, people that we knew played in the AGA and USGA events and ultimately got the first grass clippings open to have this incredibly like magical field of an in- extremely diverse uh, uh, f- field of players and, and come together and play in a two-person scramble uh, in the grass clippings open with no strokes. And so, you know, as, as um, intense as it was and as high stakes as it was, when you play a two-person scramble on a par three course, it can only be so serious. It's not like you're like grinding and climbing through the desert, looking for your ball and hitting a provisional. It's like, it's basically only how high can you go? How up can you go? How many birdies can you make? How many hole-in-ones can you make, right? Like there was multiple hole-in-ones in in the tournament. And so it's it's really um, like just a, a, a birdie barrage and it's how many birdies can you make and so at that point we knew that the grass clippings open shouldn't just be like a once a year type of event yes we're going to still host the grass clippings open but really par three golf is is like the missing link to this whole entertainment um entertainment and golf like you have you know, all kinds of non-traditional golf um, things happening with like, this was right in the time where top golf was just growing like wildfire, putt shack, pop stroke. But our vision is that, you know, you can still have that core entertainment value, but it's still real golf. It's still anywhere there's grass, that's real grass. Um, it's still golf. And so, we knew right after that first grass clippings open that mountain shadows wasn't going to be able to uh, let us grow the tournament in 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 accordance with the vision that we had. Uh, it's surrounded by homes. Uh, it's in Paradise Valley, which has dark sky ordinance. It has noise ordinances, and we were like, we want this, you know, to be the greatest golf tournament. Um, that we know about, right? Particularly in the short course space. And so it was after the first grass clippings open that um, all credit to to Pete Wilson said, guys, we need our own golf course if we want to take this thing where we want it to go. Um, and so that kicked off a three-year journey to uh, ultimately, um, you know, go, go down like a full-blown like real estate acquisition path um, and list out all of the golf courses where this would be possible. Um, and then we ultimately found Rolling Hills and started that process with the city of Tempe. I, I would also just add, um, you know, like Jake said, we, we were growing out of mountain shadows and we needed a place to expand and create uh, the vision we have for the Grass Clippings Open. But also at that same time, we kind of realized there was a missing market um, par three golf, uh, there's 250 something golf courses in Phoenix, you know, and par three golf, it just really doesn't exist around the Valley or really around the United States. Um, and so we kind of also just saw a missing market for par three golf. If you, if you look at all the available courses, typically they're behind gates, uh, in a private community. And so we kind of said, how is, how is Mountain Shadows the only par three course you can jump onto and play? 
And so the GCL and then also that missing market of of lit up par three golf, we kind of all huddled up and and said, let's go do this. Yeah, there's there's a lot of directions we can go from here. Uh, the the thing I think I, right off the bat, just talking about is it's just par three courses and their value, right? I think um, what you guys hit on with the with the GCO, the age range that's feasible, right? You know, if you play, I I know um, you guys are good players. Like if you play with a a seventy year old guy who used to be a good player, um, you know the the big advantage that you have over them is the driver. Right. And you're able to get places that they can't get to and you're hitting shorter clubs in. But when you when it's a par three course, all of a sudden the 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 field is so, so much leveler because you're hitting approach shots. And it, it's kind of less about physical, physical um, ability and more about the skill of the game. Right. Um, I, you know, it's fascinating. I don't know if you guys know the Wisconsin State Golf Association has held a par three. A, a state amateur par three tournament for years now at the sandbox at sand Valley. And the first year they held it, a 58 year old who's a four handicap won it, you know, like he beat college kids. Yep. He beat like, you know, it, and it's, it's a, it's a fascinating aspect. And and I think the other thing with par three courses is like, there's a lot more community. There's, you know, camaraderie is formed because, you know, you're not diverging off from people because you're the shots are so short that you're sticking together, right? Like if you think about like a normal round of golf, you hit a tee shot and everybody goes out. Um, what, you know, with, with the idea of par three courses, you know, you're, you're building rolling Hills right now and we'll get into that, but like, is your vision to build more than beyond the Phoenix market? Yeah, I, I mean, definitely is. We've kind of said as a group, um, we have such a great thing going on at Rolling Hills. Let's make sure we do it right there. Um, uh, let's let's take the time to really make sure the course is great, the F&B is great, the experience is perfect. And once we nail that, let's go look at some other markets. Um, you know, some things that make sense are 12-month seasons, um, and, and certain things you need to, to make it successful, we think. But uh, there's no doubt that there will be another uh, grass clippings part three course in a different state. What was it about uh, Rolling Hills that stood out? You said you looked at a ton of different golf courses. Um, what were the attributes that you were looking for when you when you did that due diligence on all these courses? Um, there There's like, I think three or four things as I list them out, we'll find out. So, so we, we knew we wanted to stay in the Valley. Like Jimmy said, there's 250 golf courses that are all more or less very similar. Um, and so we knew we wanted to stay in the Valley. So we went and looked for a minimum of 40 acres, roughly. Um, we needed no dark sky ordinance because we knew we wanted to light the course and then no sound ordinance and no neighbors, um, no, no houses really in the vicinity, right? And so by the time you check those four boxes, um, you are, and I guess the, the fifth one would be finding land that's not the highest and best use is putting like office or a bunch of homes on it um, because that, you know, makes more money than, than a big golf course. 
And so, uh, well, as or of a now, short golf course. as of now, we might change that, that reality. But um, yeah, so when you consider those five things, it it really narrowed down the options to like two different spots in the valley. One was blank land um, that didn't have any um, utilities running to it. And there was obviously no existing golf course. And then the other one was rolling hills. And so once we found rolling hills and we had grown up playing that course here and there, um, we obviously played high school golf in the Valley. So we played a bunch of different golf courses um, and we knew it was, it was awesome. It's in Papago park, which is the same place that has another golf course called Papago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got the zoo and the botanical gardens and like cool trails and hiking and red rock buttes in there. And so, and it's really like a center point in the Valley. It's the, it borders, um, like Scottsdale, Phoenix and Tempe. Um, and so it's like this preserve where there's an existing executive course. We've been saying a lot of par three, but uh, rolling Hills is actually a par 62, um, and, uh, and so it checked all of those boxes. Um, and that's what gave us the green light to, to start going down that road with the city. Yeah. How did that work? How did, uh, how did you, you know, start, I think a lot of people have courses around them that they always dream of fixing up or, you know, yeah. like, how did you start the process of even, you know, discussing with them the chance to remake and you know re really like you know rebrand their executive course we got to give up all our secrets right now (laughs) don't tell anyone (laughs) um no it's a good question so um we really had this idea and like jake said earlier we we went all around the uh phoenix metro area looking for a great location to do this and when we identified rolling hills uh, at that time, we had kind of had our concept packaged up. And it was as simple as going going down to the city and, and connecting with the mayor and saying, hey, uh, we, we've identified Rolling Hills as a great piece of property uh, and a great place for us to, um, to take our concept and, and do it here. And we presented it to uh, city council. And they reviewed it and said, you know what, this is, this is a great idea. This is a place that could use some help. Um, and so they kind of, they reviewed the whole thing and came back to us and said, yeah, this is, this is something we're interested in, something uh, we're willing to talk about. And, um, and from there, because it's city owned land, they legally have to open up a public RFP. So at that point, um, there was a 60 day, uh, time where anyone from around the world could submit uh, a proposal to do what we were trying to do. Um, And so the city reviews all the proposals that are submitted, um, which we ultimately won, um, and then went into a uh, about a two year lease negotiation with them. Were there other proposals like uh, at that time? Like, uh, were were you get were you nervous? Did you was there a proposal that you were like, uh, I'm a little worried about this one? We were nervous. I mean, we're a startup uh, company in Arcadia, uh, in a in a small little neighborhood, Um, and yeah, there were six other proposals, and uh, they were all 
like big time management companies from uh, across the United States. Uh, but I think that some, something that stood out to the council was, hey, this is a local group uh, who's showing strong interest, who's answering the phone, who's going to be hands on, who's going to show up um, and, and really, really help us out here. So I think, in my opinion, that and the, uh, the $15 million going into the property probably was the reason we won. All right. So let's talk about the um, the plan and, and the proposal that you guys put together and, and what you guys are doing at Rolling Hills. So it was an existing par 62 golf course. What will it be when it's when it's done? And, you know, in terms of facilities as well as the golf course and and, you know, kind of what what's the plan? So. Um, I guess a good way to segue on the, the city process into what actually is going to happen. So one of the, the major selling points was um, this is one of two city of Tempe properties that has a golf course involved in it. And so they held the Rolling Hills golf course and still do very near and dear to their hearts. And one of the key attributes to our proposal was um based on the existing operations which is really confined to just uh uh golf and people going to the driving range we estimated around 75,000 people enter those um gates on an annual basis to go enjoy the rolling hills property um and our proposal was to create reasons beyond just golf to go and draw, enjoy this 93 acre, essentially, not essentially, a, a public park for the city of Tempe, right? And so after our improvements, we're expecting in the range of 300 to 400,000 people now going through the gates. Um, and so you ask, what's in the proposal? What are we doing? And and we like to say it's... it's um, if we started from scratch right now and we maybe got a couple of beers and sat down and said, what do we want to do to this place? It would be that list, right? Where it's, we know we want to make improvements to the actual golf course itself, redo, shape some of the tee boxes to be flatter than they currently are. Um, we're moving uh, one of the holes to, to make room for um, some additional amenities going in, which I'll cover. Um, so it's, it's golf course, actual improvements. It's lighting the course with, uh, Musco lighting. They're basically the number one sports lighting, uh, uh, company in the industry. So they've been incredible to work with. Um, also a, a lot of existing lighted golf courses are like flickering yellow, like street <laughs> light, you can, your ball, you lose it when it's at its peak flight and then it comes back into view. This is going to be like state-of-the-art, you know, perfect brand new lighting. And so that's a big thing. Uh, the existing driving range is really pretty tired. So it's a full renovation of, you know, restripping the, the hitting areas, putting covered hitting. Obviously, it's uh, we're sitting here in Phoenix. It's 114 today. So covered hitting bays is really, really important through the hot uh, seasons here. Um, we're going to be adding stuff like tr top tracer. So you can go out there. A lot, a lot of driving ranges are, uh, implementing that right now. Um, and then as far as the, you know, how do you get from 75,000, uh, patrons to 300, a lot of it has to do with 
the improvements to the clubhouse and the food and beverage experience. Um, there's an existing 10,000 square foot clubhouse that hasn't been touched since the 80s. So it's tired. It doesn't smell exactly great in there right now. Um, and so we're going for a full renovation of uh, indoor covered patio, event lawn, um, and then open air bar to sort of create um, really something that not even at a golf course, but in the valley here in Phoenix doesn't exist. Like the, the most ideal place uh, on a good day or really any day, but to go and enjoy a couple hours of time, whether you're planning on playing golf or not. The the lighted aspect of it, especially in the summer, has to be like a huge draw. The, you know, like playing golf at this time of year there is kind of miserable. And like having an option when, when it, I mean, because the lows are what, 70 at night there this time of year? We wish. Yeah, we wish. It, it stays uh, closer to 100 at night. Oh, my God. See, see, no, but it, it, it'll drop down to, to 90 ish, but it stays in the 90. But to your point, like, uh, to be able to go play golf when the sun goes down in the summer is, is going to be huge for, for all of Arizona. And, and not to mention, even in the, the winter months, right? The sun goes down at five or six, and the last twilight tea times are two hours before that. So we're talking three, four o'clock is really like the last point in which you could go tee off and get and get nine holes in maybe. Um, and so that just doesn't really apply to this golf course anymore. Um, the lights will be on year round from anywhere from 10 to uh, we, we can keep them on till 2 a.m. We got to talk to back to where we started, uh, the greenskeepers. Uh, they're the ones that are a little bit worried about the high volume out there. <laughs> and so as long as as long as they're good, um, then then we'll be we'll be um maintaining quite a bit of golf play out there. I imagine with the high volume, you're looking at things with design to mitigate that. Would like bigger greens, is that stuff you're looking at? I, I, and maybe talk about what you're doing on the design side a little bit. For sure. Um, that was actually a huge reason we hired uh, Jackson Kahn to do the renovation. So uh, David and uh, David Kahn, Tim Jackson are the ones leading charge on on design and um, they're they've probably designed one of my favorite courses ever in Scottsdale National, the other course. It's an amazing golf course. Uh, amazing. The other course is uh, what it's called is six it's, par threes, six par fours, six par fives. They got a creative. It's, flair it's the perfect gambling course. Um, but anyways, we uh, we hired them uh, specifically for that reason. Um, but we're also doing, and we can get into Jackson con, you know, David is running point here and, and he is amazing to work with and his vision and, uh, his ability to understand our concept and jump right into it is, is amazing, but we're doing things like, so we have big, big tee boxes. And then on those tee boxes, we have 10 by 11 synthetic, uh, turf, placed inside the big, uh, tee boxes. So, you know, certain nights we might, we may hit off of, uh, synthetic grass just to give the real grass a rest. Um, but, uh, 
you know, David designs pretty big greens. Uh, the first one he did is the ninth hole, which is pushing 7,000 square feet. So the ability to put the pin in different locations and let the grass rest. Um, but there's all sorts of different tricks and, and grasses that we specifically will use that, uh, you know, uh, do better uh, in weather and in in a ton of play and so things like that are we're taking into consideration and and doing. One one of Jackson Khan's uh, biggest value points is replay value, um, right? So a lot of the courses that they design, and obviously this is a renovation, so they're inheriting a lot of they're inheriting the routing, they're inheriting. Um, you know, a lot of aspects to the golf course and we're not redoing, um, too much of the golf course at this point. Like a lot of the green complexes are staying, um, but thinking of replay value, um, is something that they've even through just this taught us how important it is. And so what that means is, um, the ability to go through the golf course and then play it again. Uh, the same day and play it from a different tee box, a different length, a different angle. So one of the things we're doing early on here is um, is adding additional tee boxes to accommodate those different lengths and different angles. Um, you know, you could have you could have one one side where you have a ton of green to work with and it's an easy approach, and then you just come uh, in like 15 degrees to a different side, and you're now short sided with a bunker and a rock. Um, threatening your approach. Right. And so, um, that's, that's been top of mind as we've approached the, the renovation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, from, uh, from a tournament perspective, when you want to do the GCO, it can offer exactly. a lot of different right. flexibility. So how many holes will the, will the course be when it's, when it's finished? It's 18 holes. Okay. Although our first proposal was 22. Got rejected. Yeah, our, our twenty-two we, two hole uh, proposal got rejected. We confused people. They were they just could not understand why we would have twenty-two holes. And and to us, it was really simple. Why wouldn't we have twenty-two holes? <laughs> you know, every time I finish eighteen, I'm looking for a few more to play. Uh, if you're in a tight money game, you need a a good playoff hole loop. But uh, yeah, no, it's a eighteen hole golf course. That's uh, you know, there's a there's a I don't know if you guys are f- familiar with McMenamins in in Portland. If you heard of them, they do uh-huh. they have a part they do like they do uh they have breweries and hotels and different hospitality things, but they have a a thing called the pub course in Oregon, and it's like they have a twelve hole course and a twenty two hole par three course, and the whole premise of the really? place, yeah, you go. You don't bring your own clubs. You get one club and a putter and a ball. Amazing. And it's just this little old old school like dive bar type feel where you check in, you get a beer, you go go play your golf. It's a really cool place, but you know, along the same line, but completely, you know, you know, 22, 12 holes, like not 9 and 18. And I think like you know, it's it's fascinating to be like you you think about like presenting something to a government and, and like you know, they aren't necessarily the most open-minded of, of, um, you know, <laughs> people. So the idea of going away from 18 holes, even though you're adding you're it's not like you were even taking away, you're adding holes. Like we want to, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. I mean, working with the city of Tempe, I will say was, was fabulous. Uh, but certainly those early stage presentations, 
uh, you know, we were presenting pretty wild concepts, uh, in our opinion, uh, would have been pretty cool. And then, uh, presenting to the public was also a, a, a challenge. The, the folks that have played there forever were like, so again, why, why are you doing 22 holes? We, we, we typically just play 18. The, the main thing really with the proposal, um, was, was the public, right? Like there are people that call Rolling Hills, their home golf course and have done so for 40 years. And, and so one of them actually was my sixth grade teacher. And, uh, it was insane. Like she, she was opposed to the proposal that I was championing. And I'm like, you had a part in creating me, right? Like you should support, (laughs) you should support this. I was thinking about that the whole time. Right. Like she was responsible for like cueing my brain to, you know, make an impact on the world. And here I am and she's, and we're just getting shot down. Um, and, and so I think the, the relationship that we found between the city and the stakeholders, which were really like 50 people that love, live, and breathe with the Rolling Hills Golf Course as it currently is, um, council was like, you know, all of these ideas are great. Obviously, we want more people to enjoy it. Like, we love the enthusiasm we want to be cutting edge in golf and the city of Tempe has two golf courses and like, heck yeah, this sounds incredible, but go talk to the stakeholders. That's what it was. And so really the entire fight for a lack of better terms, I'm sure a lot of them are going to listen to this podcast, but the, really the entire fight was like, like we're coming in clearly this golf course is struggling it needs an update. It hasn't had one in, in 30 or 40 years. This is what we want to do. And the, a lot of the fight was just creating the trust. And when you come out saying that you want to do 22 holes, it's for a traditionalist, it's not the best look, I will admit. Um, especially if you don't know who this grass clippings is and they say stay grassy and why do they say, like, so there was just a lot of learning curves involved. Andy, you can't imagine some of the stories going around town as to what we had planned for this golf course. I, I Jake and I and, and the rest of the team would show up to these public gatherings to kind of update them, you know, and, and folks would raise their hand. And and I guess one story would be uh, someone said, you know, I'm, I'm not supporting this, you know, uh, a top golf with a Hilton, a Hilton Inn on this property does not make sense. And we're like, what? What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? And so the, the, the story and of, of our concept just got hijacked early on and, and certainly made it difficult for us. We're like, guys, we're, we're just trying to make it a, a little better of a golf course than it is today. One giant game of telephone. Yeah. Like, where people would tell us about our proposal things we didn't know. And we were like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you got there, which still a golf course. <laughs> I, I imagine your slogan, stay grassy, probably like, you know, certain people took that the wrong way too, right? Yeah. that's a... we, we launched right around when weed became legal. So there was, <laughs> people drew some parallels. <laughs> uh, 
And we haven't dabbled in that space yet. We've had every single dispensary come ask if we can collab with them. And we were like, we're, we're not opposed, but let's just, let's just put it on hold for a little bit. Let's establish ourselves as, as just something about the greenskeepers. It's pretty funny. We have, we have one, uh, our one and only little boutique shop is, is where we are right now in Arcadia. And uh, out front, it says grass clipping, stay grassy. And, and early on the first year, people would walk in and we'd be sitting here, you know, and, and they would, right when they'd walk in, they'd just freeze and kind of look around and be like, <laughs> and we're like, can we help you? And they're like, uh, I thought this, what, what is this? We're like, this is a, a golf shot. And they're like, oh, wrong, wrong place. Looking for something else. Oh, that's, that's great. Uh, yeah, I see the hats. I see the hats at tournaments. I like, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's cool. I always like, you know, I always appreciate what I see just randomly, like our merchandise around it. And, and, you know, this year I've seen, I've seen the stay grassy stuff at the masters. I saw them at the U S open and, uh, you know, it was something that I had started following earlier in the year and, and you recognize it. And but like if you're just a passerby, you might think something completely different. Um, so sure. it's it's fast. It's, it's amazing to hear <laughs> that you get random random drop-ins from people thinking that you're doing that you got something else there. So they're certainly looking for something all else. the time, all the time. <laughs> um, At least we have a pivot option. Yeah, exactly. That's a, you. You don't have to just shut it down. You could you could go no. go, go do, You got great branding for that. Um, I got one more leg. One more leg to stand on. Uh, what, what are the, what's the timeline and kind of the, uh, plans for, for reopening? So, uh, our original plan to continue to weave in the city process was to shut the golf course down while we did the renovations. Um, that was a no-go. That's a no-fly zone. And so it's actually open right now. You can go play grass clippings at Rolling Hills, um, and it's a little, it's a little messy. It's a little construction sitey, um, but it's playable. And the lights are going to be the first phase, and it's the first permit that's going in. Um, it's already in. It's already uh, generally approved. Um, so the lights hopefully go up while the course is closed through overseed. And then the renovations on everything else will start actually right around that time as well. Um, in the full uh, scope of the project should be done around May or June of 2024. Um, but you will be able to play night golf, hopefully November, December. That's awesome. It'd be, yep. I mean, it's going to be with the tourism that, that Scottsdale and, and Phoenix and Tempe get with, for golf and, and the, you know, I think always like when you think about winter golf resorts, right. You know, people always talk about stream song and, and, and places like that. It's like, yeah, it's hard when your peak season is the shortest days of the year. Cause there's only so many right. people you can get around and, you know, providing effectively an option for people, you know, that top golf I've been to in Scottsdale, that place is slammed, you know, all winter long. Right. It's providing real golf option is, uh, is amazing. And, and what better way than to play like a par three course at eight, nine o'clock at night when, when you're on a golf right. trip. Right. Totally. So, yep, totally. um, how can people follow along and, uh, and, and, and find you guys? 
the best way to follow along is going to be through social media. Um, it's going to be following us on Instagram and or Twitter primarily, um, grassclippings.club. And then we just launched, and I think we're on what are we're on our fifth, sixth episode for uh, our new YouTube channel. And so that YouTube channel, if you really want to go like the most in-depth and actually behind the scenes on all fronts, both golf course and grass clippings open, um, it would be to tune into the YouTube channel. Um, and that handles grass clippings 2018. Um, and that is a behind the scenes on really like everything that we're doing here at grass clippings anything from architectural meetings on the golf course on the restaurant um, meeting and hiring chefs and head pros uh, and working the inner operations of the golf course all of the decision making we're doing um, which is sort of like an, a never-ending thing um, and then about to uh, release the information on the grass clippings open and the new look of the tournament. Um, and so I guess the cliff notes on that are we held a Calcutta for the grass clippings open and the Calcutta, you know, would get to $150,000 plus. Um, and so it created this like sense of, of team ownership where third parties would come in, whether they're individuals or syndicates, and they would have a plan and buy a team in the grass clippings open, follow them throughout the entire week. So we're actually um, going to be launching um, a little bit more of a permanent team ownership situation for the grass clippings open, where you can, uh, you can buy a team on, a, on an annual basis and compete in the event and then have access to the the purse and winnings which will be in the in the hundreds of thousands of dollars so um the two main things are create the executive short course par three course to host um the events that we want to put on and then and obviously we're focused on that being an everyday thing but it also is the new home of the grass clippings open golf tournaments and series of golf tournaments um, that will accommodate this new look at at golf and team ownership and competition. Because you guys, you guys are going right after live, you know, team ownership, you know. We're coming for them. <laughs> yeah. We're coming for them. I mean, we, we're uh, for sure. Um, and it's been in the workings for quite some time. And I think we've learned a couple of things from live, like maybe uh, find – more intriguing names in the fireballs or whatever. <laughs> what are some of the, what are some of the names? The There's some the uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, the branding behind the live uh, seems like it was put together quickly. <laughs> um. So yeah, but uh, and then obviously we're we're just like siloed on short course golf um, and scramble format. Um, that's that's where we're gonna live. We're not. We're not going anything. We're not trying to be anything else other than other than that. Well, that's that's awesome. It's uh, I always love hearing how things get started, and it's a, it's amazing to see you guys uh, having success. And um, you know, look forward to checking in when the uh, when the course is uh, when when it's done, and stopping by next time I'm in uh, in uh, the Phoenix area. 
For sure. We, we got to get you out here. We can, uh, we can record a follow-up if you'll have us at the course. We'll get some mics set up. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it'll be, uh, it'll be an awesome spot. And, you know, it's, it's sort of an all-our-welcome vibe out there. All right. Thanks, guys. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. Today's episode was edited by Matt Rusis. Thank you, Matt. As a quick reminder, um, we've got a lot of stuff humming in Club TFE. The latest thing that we've got up there is our member guest, uh, along with a bunch of other great content, but our member guest event uh, that will be in October, end of October in, uh, in California. You can check it out there if you're a member. If you're looking to become a member, we're delivering three to four, some weeks, five new pieces of content uh, on top of a lot of other benefits. You can see them all at at thefriedegg.com slash membership. It's $120 for the year, and it really uh, does a ton to support the content that we're creating on a daily basis and uh, as we continue to attempt to uh, produce more great content that you guys uh, will enjoy. So uh, visit thefriedegg.com slash membership to get those details, and we will be back next week with a couple new podcasts. Thank you.